The following sermon is brought to you by Cornerstone Baptist Church. For more information on our teaching and preaching ministry, visit us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. Tonight, um, the title of the sermon, Before the Throne of God, and that title really derived from the, the text of chapter 4 and chapter 5 in the sense that John, now in a vision, is uh, lifted up, as it were, and given a vision of the heavenly throne room. So we are taken, as it were, into the throne room of God and to see the throne. So a, a, a lot of what takes place now in the book of Revelation after this point really takes place from the... Um, from the standpoint or from the perspective of this throne room. So as we get to uh, chapter 6, chapter 7, and then when the cycles repeat, we're going to talk about that at the end of chapter 7, but when the cycles repeat and we begin again in chapter 8, uh, all the way through chapter 21, chapter 22 of the book, uh, all of the activity, so to speak, takes place from the standpoint of this throne room in heaven. And so for us to have an understanding of uh, obviously, what's going on there, really important. And we're going to see um, the one in chapter four. We see the one seated upon the throne. We see him worshiped in chapter five. And we have a messianic figure that comes and takes the scroll. We know who that is, who takes the scroll and uh, begins to break its seals. And then we get into the sealed judgments that take place in chapter six and going forward. Uh, but then two, uh, to see how this imagery that John is given, this vision that John is given, is rooted and grounded in Old Testament uh, types and in Old Testament um, symbols, in Old Testament visions. Uh, We have prophets in the Old Testament who saw what John saw. And so we want to connect those things. So tonight in Revelation 4, we're going to spend some time doing that um, on this theme of a throne in the temple, in the heavenly temple. So we'll look at that tonight in Revelation chapter 4. So tonight, our text, Revelation chapter 4. When you find that, I'm going to read verses 1 through 11, and then we're going to look tonight specifically, really, at verses 2 and 3. Maybe a little into 4. <laughs> All right. This is the Revelation of Jesus Christ, chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne, in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal, and in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures, full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature like a calf. The third living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. And they do not rest day or night saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever... The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, 
You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. Praise the Lord, right? What a, a glorious vision. So let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you. Thank you, Lord, that you have in grace, I uh, have uh, condescended to pull back the curtain, as it were, uh, to give us this vision of the heavenly throne room. And thank you, Lord, for how that informs our understanding of our circumstances, uh, our place in the great tribulation and the difficulties that we face and the persecution that we face and the the trials and adversity that we go through. Lord, we know that uh, our God is enthroned in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases, that he works all things after the counsel of his his own will. in sovereign rule over all things whatsoever that come to pass. And we rest and rejoice and hope and look to you in faith, knowing that you work all things together for our good, all things for the good, for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we are grateful, Lord. We love you and we worship you and we praise you and thank you for these things. And help us, Lord, to have uh, this heavenly perspective on our circumstances as we uh, live for you here uh, in the church, the church militant, but also, as our brother said this morning, the church triumphant. Uh, We uh, thank you, Lord, that you give us just what we need to persevere, just what we need to press on and to keep going. Strengthen us, Lord, by your spirit to do just that. And may it be to your praise and worship. It's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. And the title of our sermon this evening, Before the Throne of God, this is part two, Revelation chapter four, verses one through 11. So we come to this text, in his commentary on Revelation 4, uh, Joel Beakey referred to Nicholas Copernicus. And uh, it was around the time of the Reformation that a scientist, if you will, maybe one of the first of the modern scientists, Nicholas Copernicus, revived an old debate about the Earth's place at the center of the universe. For millennia, men assumed a geocentric model of creation, and that the earth was at the center of the universe and everything revolved around the earth, the sun, moon, the planets, the stars, everything revolved around the earth. Copernicus would argue, and Galileo and Newton would later eventually prove a heliocentric model of our solar system, that the earth and the planets actually revolved around the sun. And one planetary system, uh, this planetary system, in the vast, immeasurable expanse of space. Now, that discovery had a profound effect on the way that people viewed the world, how the people viewed the universe and their place in the universe. Um, Many even thought that that discovery, if you will, or that thought was heretical. And as much as the way that the, the science at that time had changed the way that people saw the universe, it was that that shift in perspective, changing the way that we saw ourselves that eventually became known as the Copernican Revolution. And what was at the heart of that revolutionary thought, uh, really at the heart of the uh, controversy around that revolutionary thought, was not ultimately a heliocentric challenge to a geocentric view of creation. Uh, The Copernican Revolution really ultimately challenged man's anthropocentric view of creation. It challenged the thought that man himself was at the center of everything. That was really the issue, right? That was really the issue. Man somehow imagined that everything revolved around him. (laughs) And that Copernican revolution then had the effect of putting man in his place, putting us in our place, made us think more rightly about where we are in the grand scheme of things. And what 
Copernicus then may have accomplished incidentally in doing that, Revelation 4 aims that intentionally. That's the perspective that Revelation 4 gives us. Revelation 4, the Lord Jesus Christ wants us to have an accurate biblical view of our place in the cosmos. And more importantly, God's place in the cosmos. Revelation 4 provides the right perspective. The entirety of the cosmos is not geocentric. It's not heliocentric. It's not anthropocentric. The entirety of the cosmos is theocentric. Theocentric. At the heart of it all, at the center of it all, is a throne. And at the center of all, one sits upon that throne, and he sits upon that throne in sovereign rule. The one who works all things according to the counsel of his own immutable will. There is one who sits on the throne who is directing the course of history to accomplish all of his redemptive plans and purposes. And the one who sits upon the throne condescends to encourage us with that reality. That's the purpose of Revelation 4. So as we, the people of God in this generation, as we take up the torch... Uh, in our own place in the great tribulation, as it were, as we face our own testing in the wilderness, we are to look to him who sits upon the throne and take encouragement to persevere. We are to understand that he reigns and rules. And it's a vision of Christ enthroned that gives us the assurance that we need to endure to the end or until he returns. Right? We talked about it this morning in terms of perseverance. With perseverance, we, we need both assurance and we need an endurance. Well, scriptures are full of the promises of God that give us assurance. And this vision in Revelation 4 gives us assurance that for all of the, the nonsense that takes place in the world around us, and as Pastor Rick was talking about this morning, the, the rest of the world could burn down around us. But we know that there is one who sits on the throne in the heavens and he holds them in derision, right? As they array themselves against him, he laughs, but he's the one in sovereign control. And we walking by faith and not by sight, uh, we get a vision of that heavenly throne room. And the one who is seated upon the throne from the apostle John here, as John describes for us what we cannot see for ourselves. So as we discussed then last week, that scene, that throne room scene in heaven, described now in two parts. In part one, verses one through five, we see the one enthroned, the one seated upon the throne. In part two, verses six through 11, we witness his worship. So we're going to spend a little bit more time this evening in part one, looking at the one enthroned and looking at the scene in that heavenly throne room. And it's that, that scene that will do uh, good for us as we work through the remaining chapters of the book. So that context now is established in verse one. Look at verse one with me. John says, after these things, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me saying, come up here and I'll show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne set in heaven and one sat on the throne. So now last week we established that initially what's going on here is that John, the Apostle John, is fulfilling a prophetic function. He's fulfilling a prophetic function, not unlike Daniel or Ezekiel or even Jeremiah or Isaiah. We looked at similarities last week that prove the point between Daniel and Ezekiel that what John is doing here is fulfilling a prophetic function. John is given a vision of the heavenly sanctuary. And John is prepared to receive revelation by being taken up in the spirit. And he sees a door in heaven. And the door in heaven opened to the heavenly temple. 
That tabernacle, we read in in Hebrews chapter 8, that's the tabernacle in the heavens that the Lord built and not man. In other words, Hebrews 8, it was built without hands. It is not of this creation, right? God built that himself. And in the midst of that heavenly sanctuary, in the midst of that heavenly temple, is the most holy place, which is the throne room of the living God. And as we've talked about that in the past, we've, we've talked about God um, enthroned between the cherubim. Well, there was the, in the most holy place, there was the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of the Testimony. We'll see that later on tonight. And on the seat, on the, on the mercy seat, on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, uh, two cherubim, their wings touching in the middle. And it was said that God was enthroned or dwelled between the cherubim. Above that Ark, in the holy of holies, in the most holy place, there was in the back two 30-foot cherubim, giant cherubim, their wings touching in the center. And it was said that God ruled or that God was enthroned or that God dwelt between the cherubim. That's the picture, the vision that John gets. John sees a doorway open into heaven, into this heavenly throne room in which God rules. Do you see? This beautiful, beautiful picture that is, is impossible for us to imagine. Now, the fact that there is a throne, and the fact that there is one seated there, those things are very important. That signifies and communicates absolute sovereign rule. In other words, God is not just there, so to speak. God is ruling there, and God is active in rule. rule. He is sovereign uh, in his rule, absolute in his rule. It's from there, from the throne, that he upholds all things by the word of his power. It's from there that God dispenses justice and enforces righteousness and pours out grace and mercy and pours out his judgments upon the wicked. And the connection now between this throne, God's sovereign rule, the heavenly sanctuary or the heavenly temple, and that connection to us on earth is a really important one. And so we want to spend some time thinking about that tonight together. It's from there that we see God ruling over the earth, right? Ruling over his people and God ruling even now. This was, remember, a vision that John was given in the first century. As John wrote late in the first century, John sees a doorway open in heaven and God ruling from his throne. It's from here that we see where everything is headed. (laughs) It's from here that we see who's in control of all things whatsoever that come to pass. And it's visions in Revelation, the book of the Revelation, that gives us a Copernican revisioning, if you will, of all of our circumstances. It should, right? It should, it should cause a, a Copernican revolution in our minds with the way that we see things. We don't see things the way that we once did. You remember when you were unconverted and you had no understanding, no perspective of these things. Now when the Lord has changed your heart and mind, he's given you his word. He's revealed himself to you. It's a Copernican revolution in our hearts and minds. We know who's in control, right? And we can trust the one who rules in righteousness from the throne room of God. It's visions like these that, that help us to, to re-envision our hope, to re-envision where our joy lies. It's to, to fix our eyes in the heavens on eternal and unseen things. It helps us to see reality for what it is and helps us to lift our eyes right out of the muck of our own circumstances to see him. So first, now what I want to do is let's, I want to establish this, and there's going to be a point to this. Let's establish the fact that this throne, this throne that John is looking at, is God's throne in the heavenly temple. 
that he's not looking at a random throne room, so to speak, but this is the throne room of God in the heavenly temple. And we want to establish that fact. Notice with me, look at verse six. I'm going to ask you to remember these verses as we we go through this. Verse six, in the midst of the throne, around the throne were four living creatures. And those four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. We're going to talk about what that means when we get to verse six. Look at verse eight. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. You got the picture, right? The heavenly throne room. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter six. Isaiah chapter six. John's vision of the door standing open in heaven was a vision of a doorway into the heavenly sanctuary. It was the vision of a doorway into the heavenly temple. And that's why, that's why brothers and sisters, this room is not a sanctuary. <laughs> this room is an auditorium. There's one sanctuary, where is that? It's in heaven where God dwells, right? There is a sanctuary in heaven. What John saw was a doorway opened into the heavenly sanctuary, And in the midst of that heavenly sanctuary, in the midst of that heavenly temple is the most holy place where in the most holy place where it used to be that the high priest, only the high priest once a year could go in and that upon the the death of a sacrifice, the death of a substitute, so to speak. Now that doorway is open in heaven to John. John can see into the most holy place into the very throne room of God. But look at Isaiah chapter six, verse one. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. Isaiah sees a vision of the enthroned Lord. He was high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the the temple, right? Where is he seated? He is seated on a throne in the temple. Now, above it stood seraphim. These seraphim here in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 2, in Revelation 4, they're called the four living creatures, We know that because they're described in exactly the same way. Each one had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one cried to another and said, holy, 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 day and night. What a glorious thought, right? Day and night in the throne room of God. These living creatures crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Does that sound familiar? That's Revelation chapter four. Verse four, and the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out and the house was filled with smoke. And so I said, woe is me. Yeah, it makes us see things properly, doesn't it? It makes us see things properly. We're to see things the way they really are, not as we would want them to be, not the way this world would make us to think they are, but the way they really are. And when Isaiah sees the Lord enthroned in glory, arrayed in holiness, in the beauty of his holiness, Isaiah is undone, right? Isaiah is undone. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. He's the king because he rules and reigns from the throne. Now, John and Isaiah, they're seeing the same thing, aren't they? The same vision. John is uh, fulfilling a prophetic function in Revelation 4. And in fact, in the gospel of John, Chapter 12, verse 41, you don't have to turn there, but but John says in the gospel of John, chapter 12, verse 41, that when Isaiah said these things, he was seeing the glory of the enthroned Christ 
and speaking of him, speaking of Jesus Christ there. God is spirit. God has no form, has no body. When we look at the vision of the throne room, we don't see God who is spirit seated on the throne. Uh, We see one in appearance like a man, right? He's given a form in the vision. And um, what John says in the gospel of John is that Isaiah actually saw the risen Christ. Now, so the one that Isaiah sees then with his eyes is actually the enthroned Christ. Look with me at Revelation chapter 11. Now turn back, Revelation. Look at Revelation 11. Look there beginning at verse 15. Revelation eleven fifteen. 15, we see similar language. What we're establishing is the fact that the throne room that John sees in the vision of Revelation 4 is actually located in the heavenly temple, in the heavenly sanctuary. Okay, look at verse 15. Then the seventh angel sounded. He sounded his trumpet. These are the trumpets. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Does that sound familiar at all to you? Uh, Sounds like Jericho, doesn't it? Jericho. The seventh trumpet sounds. The children of Israel shout, and the walls of the city fall down. The city falls. Do you remember? The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. Uh, That connection to Jericho is intentional here. Jericho, in fact, the entire conquest of Canaan is a shadow of things to come. We're going to see that more as we work through Revelation. Verse 16, the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, we give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come because you have taken your great power and reigned. Look at verse 19. Then the temple of God, where's the throne? The throne is in the temple. The temple of God was opened in heaven and there the ark of his covenant was seen in the temple. And there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake and great hail. All those things that accompany or signify the presence of God in judgment uh, came with it in the vision. Now think with me. In the conquest of Jericho, the ark of the covenant followed the people didn't it? The Ark of the Covenant followed them. Here in the heavenly temple, at the sounding of the seventh trumpet, when the kingdoms of the earth fall, here we see the Ark of the Covenant again. Again, this, this connection to Jericho is intentional. Not unlike the temple itself, the Ark of the Covenant was representative of, God, of God's presence among his people. And not just his presence in grace and mercy, the Ark of the Covenant was representative of God's presence among his people in grace and mercy, but the ark was also representative of his rule in judgment upon his enemies. The ark of the covenant followed Israel into battle. And so not just a representative of God's presence in grace and mercy, but representative of God's presence in judgment. The ark was among them because it was sprinkled with blood to cover their sins. That's what ensured God's presence among them or presence with them. God was presence with them in mercy in that way. That was why the ark was also called the mercy seat. And the ark represented the presence of God with them also against their enemies when they went into battle. The Israelites uh, took the ark with them into battle. That's why the ark followed them in their conquest of the promised land. As they entered into the promised land and took Jericho, the ark was to follow the people. And we see the ark, right? The, the priests putting their feet in the water before God split the Jordan for them to walk over on dry land. 
And it's why we see the Ark of the Covenant at this point in the heavenly throne room at the conquest of the nations. What's going on here? It's the conquest of the promised land, so to speak. The conquest of the the new Canaan. And at the conquest of the nations, as the people of God march forward, we see the Ark going after. Turn with me to Revelation 15. And again, that doorway in heaven opened to the heavenly temple where in the most holy place we see the Ark of the Covenant. Revelation 15, uh, in chapter 15, John sees another sign in heaven. The last of the seven last plagues in which the wrath of God is complete. Those who have victory, think with me now, those who have victory over the beast, they're singing the song of Moses. I wonder who those people are. Who sings the song of Moses in victory uh, when Jesus Christ triumphs over the nations? Look at verse five. Let's think about that. After these things, I looked, verse five, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. In other words, the tent of meeting, the tabernacle of the testimony, literally God's dwelling place of testimony. What is this? What is being referred to? This is the heavenly equivalent of what Israel traveled with in the wilderness. The tent of meeting or the tabernacle of testimony. Again, it was representative of God's presence among them. Testimony refers to God's law. His law revealing his will for his people. But his law, what else does his law reveal? Also reveals his judgments upon the disobedient. So his will to his people, but his judgments upon the wicked. The law or the testimony was placed into the ark. The ark signifying both mercy and judgment. Incidentally, thinking about this from a new covenant perspective, who, I'm going to give it away with that, who is the tabernacle of testimony under the new covenant? Who pours out mercy upon his people and judgment upon the wicked? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the new covenant tabernacle of testimony. He is God's testimony. He's God's word. And he has in these last days spoken to us by his son. And God dwells among us through Jesus Christ. Uh, Verse six. Now out of the temple came the seven angels having seven plagues clothed in pure bright linen and having their chests girded with golden bands. And one of the four living creatures gave, see we're still in the throne room of heaven, right? The four living creatures are there. Gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power and no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Okay, so there's sufficient evidence for us, I think, isn't there? The throne room described by John in the vision of Revelation 4 is the throne room of God located in the heavenly temple. And back in Revelation 4 with me. We're going to make a point to this. Hang in there with me. John, Revelation 4, saw a door standing open in heaven. And he said, verse 2, Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. So this throne is located in the heavenly sanctuary. This throne is in the most holy place in the temple of God. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, the prophets, now John, All are given visions of God ruling and reigning from this throne. This throne located in the heavenly temple. Now, this heavenly temple, even this throne room in the most holy place 
is copied on earth, was to be copied. The instructions were given to copy these things on earth. The garden was a temple paradise of God, where God is said to, to have dwelt. Uh, the tabernacle of meeting, we've already seen that. The tabernacle of meeting, the ark that traveled with the people in their wilderness wandering. The, the temple signified God's presence among the people. The ark signifying his rule, if you will, from his throne in judgment and in mercy. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5. Moses was instructed to make the tabernacle in the wilderness according to the pattern, literally according to the type that he was shown on the mountain. Now, why is that significant? Why would there be copies of this heavenly throne room on earth? Why was Moses instructed to make copies of these heavenly things in the earthly tabernacle of meeting, for example? Or why were they replicated in the, the earthly temple? It's because these copies, these shadows, point forward to something. Types point forward to something. Shadows point forward to their substance. These point forward to something in the ultimate fulfillment of God's plans and purposes. Those earthly physical copies are made to be symbolic of something far greater. They point to a far greater reality that God has planned for us. Everything that we see in Revelation is governed or executed from this throne. The judgments that are being poured out, the mercy and grace that flows to God's people in their suffering, ultimate victory, the victory of the lamb over the beast and over the dragon, all of it, excuse me, all of it decreed, all of it orchestrated from this throne located within the temple of God, and all of it decreed for our ultimate good and for the glory of his name. This, this is the Copernican revolution that should dramatically transform the perspective of the one who has put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. As the seals of God's judgment are broken, as the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all, all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, God's people bearing the mark of God upon their foreheads can patiently persevere in faith, knowing that the consummation of all these things is at hand. There's something, we're headed somewhere, right? There's tremendous consolation in the fact that God rules from his throne, and that throne, that the copies of those things made on earth, pointing us forward to a truth that should enrich and encourage our souls. So we see the throne of God. The throne of God is at the center of the cosmos. The throne of God and the one seated there is at the center of everything that takes place in our world. The throne, even now, in the midst of the heavenly sanctuary, in the midst of the temple, which is in heaven. So where is this then all headed? What does it all point to? Why should this vision, the appearance of this throne and this one seated there, why should that vision motivate the church militant to persevere in her tribulation? How should that be a help to us? Turn back to Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 37. Got several places to look uh, here. Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 37, God announces the restoration of spiritual Israel as the people of God. God's going to restore Israel. The Lord takes Ezekiel into a valley full of dry bones, signifying death. <laughs> they were all the way dead, not like Miracle Max, part way dead. They were all the way dead. Uh, and God breathes life into them saying, I'll put my spirit in you and you shall live. And God brings them to life. 
He's going to gather them. God says he's going to gather them from the four corners of the earth. He's going to take his people out from among the nations, make them one people. They shall never be divided again. And then he says this in verse 24. Verse 24. David, my servant, shall be king over them. Who is that referring to? The Lord Jesus Christ. They shall have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe, observe my statutes and do them. Then they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob, my servants, where your father dwelt. They shall dwell there, they, their children, and their children's children forever. My servant David shall be their prince forever. Now, this is um, a prophecy fulfilled in Jesus Christ. This is a reference to the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ over the consummated kingdom in a new heavens and a new earth. Verse 26, moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will establish them and multiply them. And look at this. I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Indeed, I will be their God. They shall be my people. The nations also will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel. I set them apart to myself when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. Where is this sanctuary that John sees in heaven? Where is this sanctuary going to be? In the midst of his people. Right? In the midst of his people. God's plan and purpose is to rule in the midst of his people. Look at Jeremiah chapter 3. Jeremiah chapter 3. And look there at verse 14. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 14. Jeremiah 3, the Lord is calling his people to repentance. And calling them to repentance, he tells them of, of a time when he's going to restore them himself. God will restore them gathering them to himself and establish, establishing his presence among them. Listen to what he says in verse 14. Return, O backsliding children, says the Lord, for I am married to you. I will take you one from a city, two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. And I will give you shepherds according to my heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. Verse 16. Then it shall come to pass when you are multiplied and increased in the land in those days. Remember the, the small stone that crushed Nebuchadnezzar's statue as that small stone then grew into a giant mountain that consumed the whole earth, right? This is, they're going to be multiplied. The kingdom is multiplied. The kingdom is spread. The, the kingdom is increased in the land in those days, says the Lord. And in those days, it's that they will say no more the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind, nor shall they remember it, nor shall they visit it, nor shall it be made anymore. Why? Because, verse 17, at that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord. And all the nations shall be gathered to it, to the name of the Lord, to Jerusalem. No more shall they follow the dictates of their evil hearts. Awesome, right? Where's the throne of God? It's at Jerusalem, in the midst of his people. Uh, there are many who, um, in their theology, make a case uh, for the physical reign of the Lord Jesus Christ on the earth. That is going to be the case, but not necessarily in the way that the dispensationalist thinks that it will be. <laughs> God is going to rule. The Lord Jesus Christ is going to rule. He is going to rule with his throne 
as it were, in Jerusalem amongst his people, in the new Jerusalem. He's going to be ruling and reigning in the midst of his people. When does that rule and reign take place? It takes place in the eternal state, at the consummation of all things, at the consummation of the kingdom. He rules right now. The kingdom has been inaugurated. Jesus Christ rules over his kingdom now, and we, his people, rule and reign with him. There is an already to the kingdom, and there's a not yet to the kingdom. Not, not, not yet is coming. Look at back now uh, at Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7. And again, what we're looking at is the eventual or ultimate purpose of this throne. Revelation 7, look at verse 9. John says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude. Now think with me about who this multitude is, how they are described. A great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Who are those people? It's the church. Those are the people of God, those who've been redeemed by the Lamb. They are standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Sounds like the loud voices of Revelation 11, doesn't it? The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. That's what this group would, would shout all the angels, verse 11, stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. And one of the elders answered saying to me, who are these arrayed in white robes and where do they come from? I said to him, sir, you know. So he said to me, these are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation. This is the church. She has come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. This, these are the lamb's people. Why are they the lamb's people? Because these are the people that the lamb has redeemed with his own blood, right? He's redeemed them with his own blood. Therefore, where are they? Verse 15, where are God's people? They are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. Brothers and sisters, that's, that's never going to end. <laughs> we are going to be in eternity, as it were, in the new heavens and the new earth, always before the throne of God, worshiping and praising and serving him in what essentially is a great temple. Glorious. He who sits on the throne will dwell among them. That's where all this is headed. The one who is enthroned in heavens, in the heavens now, that John sees through the open door into the sanctuary of God, into the holy place, into the throne room of God, he, the one seated upon the throne, will dwell in the midst of his people and rule and reign from his throne in the heavenly Jerusalem, as it were, in the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, the new earth. They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The, the sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's eternity. <laughs> what does that throne room look like? Flip back to Revelation 4. What does that throne room look like? John says, verse 2, immediately I was in the spirit prepared by God to receive the revelation he's about to be given. 
In the spirit, behold, a throne set in heaven, one sat on the throne. The throne, the centerpiece of all creation. The centerpiece of all the cosmos. God, theocentric, at the center of everything. God, the one who is at the center of all creation. God reigns. And he who sat there, verse 3, was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Listen to this from Ezekiel's vision of that throne room. Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 26. Listen. And above the firmament, over their heads, was the likeness of a throne in appearance like a sapphire stone. On the likeness of the throne was the likeness of, uh, with appearance of a man high above it. Also from the appearance of his waist and upward, I saw, as it were, the color of amber with the appearance of fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his waist and downward, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire with brightness all around, like the appearance, appearance of a rainbow in a cloud on a rainy day. So was the appearance of the brightness all around it. Ezekiel says of that vision that this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. What is John seeing when he sees in Revelation 4 those precious stones? Um, jasper, sardius stone in appearance, a rainbow in appearance like an emerald. He's seeing the likeness, the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Now remember that these precious stones are the appearance of his glory, the radiance of his glory, the brilliance of his glory, the the majesty of his glory, um, the beauty of his glory, the riches of his glory, the mercy of his glory, the indescribable magnificence and worth of the presence of the living God displayed, as it were, in the brilliance of these precious, these priceless stones. The rainbow around the throne there is, is fascinating uh, to me. The rainbow, a symbol of God's mercy. We remember that, right? The rainbow, a symbol of God's mercy. Not only a symbol of God's mercy, but a symbol of God's promise to preserve the creation. So even here, as the throne sits in the heavenlies, and John has given a vision into the throne room, uh, into the Holy of Holies, he sees there a rainbow reminding him of God's promise to preserve creation. As God is pouring out judgments, as the seals are broken, and as the people who dwell on the earth are judged, and as the beast and the dragon are cast down, there is around the throne a reminder of God's mercy that he's not going to do away with creation. <laughs> he's going to make it anew again. It's a symbol. It's his promise of new creation. That's what happened after Noah. What happened after the flood? Essentially, a new creation. And there was this promise of new creation. After the judgment of the, the flood, there is a renewed creation. An implicit promise there of a new heavens and a new earth, a new Jerusalem, a new creation where God will dwell in the midst of his people forever. The beautiful picture in Revelation 4. Now turn with me to Revelation 21. Remember those stones, those precious stones, the appearance of that throne room. Ezekiel seeing essentially the same thing and the brightness of that vision is the, the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And now look at Revelation 21, beginning at verse one. John says, now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. 
And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, behold, this is the fulfillment of it. Do you see? The tabernacle of God is with men. As the new Jerusalem is descending, God enthroned in the temple, in the most holy place as it were, is descending to dwell among his people. The tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them. They shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. And he who sat on the throne said, behold, I make all things new. A promise of new creation. Then verse nine, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me, talked with me saying, come, I'll show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Interesting, isn't it? I'm going to show you the lamb's bride. And he showed him the great city descending out of heaven. Who is that? That's the bride, that's the bride of Christ. The bride of Christ. They, verse 11, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. What did Ezekiel describe the stones as? An appearance like the glory of God. These, verse 11, having the glory of God, her light. Now think with me. The people of God, this is the bride descending. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper. Clear as crystal. How was the throne described in Revelation 4? Like a jasper, like an emerald in appearance, a rainbow. Described like this this beautiful, precious stone. And here we see the bride described that way. Think now, make the connection with me. Look at verse 18. Speaking again of the bride and how she looks, as it were. The construction of his wall, this New Jerusalem, in which is the tabernacle of God as he dwells with men, dwells among them. The construction of its wall was of jasper. The city was of pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the seventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. Like a rainbow. (laughs) Like a rainbow. The twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl. The street of the city was of pure gold, like transparent glass. Ezekiel says the throne of God was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. The way that the throne was described in those precious stones, the brilliance of the majesty of the enthroned God described in terms of those precious stones was like the appearance of the glory of the Lord. Verse 22, John says, but I saw no temple in it. What are we seeing? John looks through the doorway into heaven and he sees the heavenly temple. He sees the heavenly sanctuary, the most holy place, in the most holy place, the throne of the living God. And he describes what he sees, the heavenly sanctuary, the heavenly temple, in terms of these glorious, brilliant, precious stones that Ezekiel says is the likeness of the glory of God. And then he looks at this bride descending out of heaven 
described in these same terms, these precious stones. And John, when he looks at that, says, I see no temple in it. Why is that? Because she is its temple, his temple. She is the temple of the dwelling God. God dwells in the midst of her. There is no temple because God is there. The Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. Look at Revelation 22. Look there at verse 3. There shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him before the throne of God. They shall see his face. His name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there, no need of lamp nor light of the sun. For the Lord God gives them light and they shall reign forever and ever. Brothers and sisters, when we face difficulty in this life, when we face adversity, put it in perspective. Whatever it is that we face, whatever it is that we go through, and I'm not minimizing trials and hardships in this life. Things are hard. But it's, it's this per- perspective that causes the Apostle Paul to describe our earthly temporal difficulties as a momentary light affliction. It's just momentary. This life is short, and this is what we have to look forward to. The bride of Christ God dwelling in her midst. We, brothers and sisters, are the temple of the living God. Like our brother was talking about this morning, one living stone placed upon another, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone, that whole building being built up so that the throne of God could be there. That God could be enthroned and rule and reign in the midst of his people and the lamb with him. Glorious. What is, the, what is our reality That's our reality. That's where we're going. That's where we're headed. That's the purpose. That's the end. That's the aim. That's where everything is headed. And this is a temporary stop, if you will, on the way to that glory. That's what we're looking forward to. I don't know about you, brothers, but listen, that that puts things in perspective. That gets me thinking past anything that's going on right here, right now, right? I want to be so heavenly minded, I'm of no earthly good. <laughs> I, I want to be consumed with that. Uh, and that makes us serve him more firmly, more dev- devotedly in this life, doesn't it? It's a beautiful picture. And that's where things are headed. That throne, God will be enthroned in the midst of his people. And we're going to sing praises to him. And like our brother talked about this morning, uh, I believe when uh, Hebrews, when Paul talks about that, that Jesus Christ will lead us in worship. He's going to sing with us in the midst of the great assembly. And we're going to sing praises to God. It's interesting there that if Ezekiel says that those precious stones are the likeness of the appearance of the glory of God, and then in the new Jerusalem, in the new heavens and the new earth, in the new Jerusalem, the bride of Christ is described in terms of precious stones, <laughs> then who are the brightness or the radiance? Who is the, the shining forth of the likeness of the appearance of the glory of God? It's not those precious stones. It's the redeemed of the lamb. God's people 
in glory, worshiping and praising God. Who praises God to his own glory, to the glory of the Son? God's people. God's people do. It's just, um, in other words, what you have in the new Jerusalem is you have the people of God, as it were, that in essence, it's not that the, the stones go away. I think there is going to be magnificent beauty, untold beauty around the throne, throne of God. The entire new creation is going to be absolutely glorious. It's not that those things are taken away, but what is the true gemstone of his rule and his reign? The people, the redeemed people, the blood-bought people of the Son around the throne, serving him day and night as the radiance of his glory, to the praise of the glory of his grace into the ages. Uh, We are the ones who shine like a rainbow, as it were, as an emerald around the throne. What is our hope? Is that your hope? Is that the joy that is set before you that you look forward to? When we face difficulty in our own wilderness wandering, as we face our take our own part in the great tribulation, which is where we're at, what are we to be encouraged with? We're to be encouraged with that vision, a vision that John has of the throne room in heaven, knowing from all those passages, all the prophets, where that is ultimately heading, where that ultimately points us, behold, The tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. Should revolutionize the way that we look at this life. Amen? Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for your revelation to us. Thank you that in your word, um, we see all of this laid out for us revealed to us. It's so gracious to us, Lord. Um, You're so good to us in uh, providing us with a a vision, as it were, of these heavenly things uh, for our preservation, for our endurance, for our assurance, for our hope, for our joy, for our consolation as we take our part in the great tribulation. We pray, Lord, that uh, you would help us by your Spirit to apprehend these things, embrace these things with the eyes of faith. We walk by faith and not by sight. And rapture our hearts, Lord, with the realities that we don't see for ourselves, but that John is presenting to us here, uh, you've presented to us here on the pages of this uh, magnificent book. And encourage us, Lord, with those visions, with these thoughts. Encourage us as we face trials and difficulties at home, in our families, at work. Uh, This life, Lord, is difficult. Uh, at times and uh, prone, uh, just chock full often with suffering that you, Lord, in goodness and in wisdom have ordained for our growth, maturity, and for uh, the removing of our dross. Uh, We pray, Lord, though, that you would encourage us with these precious sights, visions, that we might persevere to the end uh, and persevere in faith, Lord, loving, uh, hoping in you, um, trusting in you, looking forward to that day and when you will rule and reign in our midst. You will be our God and we your people. We love you and thank you for this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.